Welcome to the first episode of our new Sticks and Stones podcast, bringing you insights into the world of sexual health through conversations with international experts, people who are changing the world of sexual health for the better. My name is Nick Mallam. I'm International Development Director at Preventex, and I also administer the SDI International Exchange, or Sticks. I'm based in France, although as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm a British national. I hope you enjoy today's episode and very much welcome your feedback. There'll be plenty more episodes to come, so please do subscribe. We have a fantastic guest this week, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Patrick Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan is Charles Howard Candler, Professor in Epidemiology at the Rolling School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta, USA. He's also the co-director of the Center for AIDS Research Prevention Science Corps. Dr. Sullivan's research relates to e-health and remote approaches to HIV prevention with a focus on sexual and gender minorities and reducing sexual health inequities by race and for people in rural areas. Patrick, welcome to the Sticks and Stones podcast. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And it's a real pleasure for me to speak to you today. So before we go on to your background and a, and a bit of history, tell me a little bit about your current role and the research that you're doing at Emory and your affiliation with the Centers of Disease Control. Yeah, so I, I currently work at, uh, at Emory University in the School of Public Health and have a portfolio of research that um, is funded by the NIH and CDC and some private funders that mostly is, is looking at ways to really bring the prevent, HIV prevention tools that, that we know are effective to scale. And so that's about um, doing things like mailing out uh opportunities for HIV testing and STI testing rather than making people come in to get that care, uh, developing mobile apps that help navigate people through, you know, what they need to do to protect their sexual health. And it's a really great pleasure to work um, closely with colleagues at the Centers for Disease Control. So I, I worked at CDC for 12 years as an epidemic intelligence service officer and then in the HIV surveillance branch um, at the CDC. And now um, I have the pleasure of working at Emory, but continuing to get to, get to work with colleagues at CDC uh, through uh, what are called cooperative agreements, where we sort of share the leadership of science for development of some of these apps, and also working closely with the laboratories to, to figure out how to, what are, the, what are the things that we don't know how to do yet in terms of mail-out testing, and how can we bring those into the mainstream of HIV prevention practice? So. Folks who are familiar with uh, Atlanta may know that, that Emory University is literally across the street from the, the main Centers for Disease Control campus. So it's a great, uh, it's a great collaborative uh, relationship. And for those unfamiliar with Emory University and the Rolling School of Public Health, is it fair to say it's a flagship institution in the U.S.? Um, although I uh, might be accused of being biased, uh, I, I'd say it is a flagship institution. Emory is um, ranked uh, fourth among schools of public health in the U.S. But I'll also say that Emory holds a special place in, in the field of HIV prevention research and in, um, in sort of epidemic response. Our dean, Dr. James Curran, um, 
investigated the very first outbreak of, of what was then AIDS in New York City uh, in the 1980s. He's now the dean of our School of Public Health. Uh, a number of the early medications to treat uh, the HIV virus were developed by Emory. And we now have a, a thriving Center for AIDS Research that really touches on a lot of the, the key issues from medications to prevention. So it's a real, um, it's a real privilege to get to work with colleagues at, uh, at Emory. And you mentioned the, the Center of AIDS Prevention at, at Emory. Can you give an overview of the infrastructure that you have at Emory? You know, a laboratory, what resources are available to you and, and your colleagues? Yeah, our Center for AIDS Research really provides an ongoing level of um, services and resources that sort of facilitate HIV research. And so when we want to develop a new sort of laboratory approach, for example, there is a, a laboratory sciences core as part of the Center for AIDS Research that, that essentially keeps a, a really um, top-notch, cutting-edge staff of people with that lab interest it's not like applying for a grant and trying to hire and start up a lab each time there's a separate question. In our center, which is uh, the Prevention Sciences Corps, we maintain a, a lot of tools that you know people might need to do HIV prevention research, but it's more efficient to have them as, as centralized services. So for example, platforms for survey research, equipment to go out into the field if we're doing uh, data collection on the streets or at health fairs or whatever, um, we have that kind of equipment. We have a, um, a sort of bespoke participant management system that helps people run studies of HIV prevention interventions effectively and um, efficiently by sort of centralizing all the participant management functions. So we can think of the Centers for AIDS Research as providing a, a basic toolkit. If you were going to build a house you'd want to show up at that location and know that you have all the saws, um, hammers, screws, nails, and everything else you'd need um, to do that work. And the Center for AIDS Research really makes sure that when you show up to do this prevention research, that all those pieces are in place and we can focus on innovation and, and efficiently researching and implementing these ideas. I love the way that you describe that in terms of giving giving the tools to, to build the house or the, the wider policies and, um, and actions. So just going back in time, Patrick, how, how did you get into sexual health? I think sometimes we look back at our careers and realize um, that the, the chance that we took the path that we did, you know, might be one in a hundred, but we're thankful that that was the one in a hundred. Um, that was my case. I joined CDC in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a two-year fellowship that really trains um, people coming into CDC in outbreak response primarily. And my initial assignment was to work in a, in a laboratory that um, dealt with uh, hemophilia and bleeding disorders um, and to work on um, some of the laboratory aspects of understanding the function of, of megakaryocytes, um, which are the cells that, that produce uh, blood platelets. And because of some administrative restructuring of the center, I ended up um, getting placed for that two years in the HIV surveillance branch, which was pretty far from my background, which was as a, as a veterinarian and as a bench scientist. But I'm so thankful for the two years that I spent there and for the people that gave me um, opportunities to really grow in that space and, and put yourself back uh, to a time, this was in 1994, where we were nine years into the epidemic. And and there were still questions about, for example, on what all the modes of transmission were right before I came had been the, the 
investigation of transmission in the dental practice in Florida. And so I, I got to work on um, some issues of HIV diagnostic tests and, and failures of HIV diagnostic tests, particularly around um, different subtypes of HIV that weren't efficiently detected by tests, but also do investigations of you know, what we suspected might be previously unrecognized modes of HIV transmission. And that also had a pretty strong laboratory component in terms of viral sequencing um, and sort of characterizing the, the responses to, to sometimes, um, you know, variant viruses. And I, I had fully intended when I started that two-year fellowship to, to train at CDC for two years and go back and teach in a veterinary school. But I was so engaged by just the, the breadth of the question and the availability of the tools to answer it that I stayed on at CDC for another 10 years. So I, I would say how I got into sexual health was really driven by an interest in the laboratory um, and sort of the outbreak investigation um, science. But one of the first things I was assigned to do was analyze what was then the AIDS case surveillance data um, to, to really describe the epidemiology of the epidemic among men who have sex with men. And what emerged from that was one of the first quantitative views of the disproportionate impact of AIDS at that time among black MSM and this huge health, this huge gap in disproportionate impact that persists to this day. And that theme that, you know, trying to address that issue is, is something that's carried through as a theme in, in my work, which is uh, I started out my career sort of recognizing and trying to raise awareness of that inequity. And I've spent the next uh, 20 years um, trying to figure out how to, um, how to mitigate it. I can imagine being at the forefront of AIDS prevention at research and research in the 1990s must have been on one hand, um, quite exhilarating, but on the other hand, having a huge burden of, of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was, it, it's an opportunity that I'm just so grateful for. And, and I think it did attract a group of people who understood the urgency and who were really passionate about doing all that we could do with the tools that we had at that time. And it certainly shaped my professional networks. It, it's the first time that I met, um, uh, Dr. Jim Curran, who's currently the dean at Emory School of Public Health, um, but was uh, was running the center there, and so it, it's really laid out a, a network of um, of colleagues that I I still call out to when I'm faced with tough challenges, and you know who taught me so much. So it, it really was a time of opportunity and responsibility, and overwhelming and rewarding. Now, for our listeners outside of the the U.S., I know the situation regarding HIV and sexually transmitted infections vary state by state. But can you paint a general picture of how sexual health policy works, i.e. what is managed at federal level, what is managed at, at state level? Sure. So our sort of public health system um, really disseminates the, the implementation of the provision of services very largely to uh, you know, local jurisdictions. And so we have the Centers for Disease Control that both for HIV and for, you know, SCIs actually provides, you know, a fair bit of funding for public health programs, but they really are managed and implemented at the state level. The other thing that, that ends up relating both to policy uh, and, and certainly, I should say, certainly national guidelines, for example, for recommendations for screening testing and 
uh, for HIV testing and for diagnostic algorithms come from the federal level. But the, the extent to which there's an expectation that the states implement and manage their own programs and, uh, and certain aspects of policy, I think, is, is pretty um, extensive. And it sort of uh, leads to sometimes quite different accessibility of certain kinds of services, depending on where you are. Some states and cities add in more of their own local investment, whereas others use those federal funds, um, and that's really the primary source of funding. The other thing that really drives this interplay of federal and state right now is the process of the expansion of Medicaid. There are currently 12 states out of our 50 who have not chosen to expand eligibility for Medicaid uh, to get a a broader coverage of those federal health benefits for people in their states. And I I think most of those states that haven't yet expanded Medicaid are in the U.S. South. And so this is just an example of the interplay where the federal government, you know, makes resources available, sets guidelines, sets policies, but then there are decisions that are made in states that have huge impact on the outcomes and the availability of services for people living in those states. And how are things changing under the Biden administration, Patrick? Um, You know, I think some things are changing. Some things are staying the same. Um, You know, I'll start by saying that uh, there was a plan laid out, uh, ending the plan to end the HIV epidemic in in the U.S. that was laid out in the previous administration that really is still um, has steam behind it and and sets out some ambitious goals for reducing uh, new HIV infections in the United States uh, over the over the coming um, three to five years. And that really still is a guidepost. I think part of what's changed um, is we have more engagement at the level of the White House. Um, the Office of National AIDS Policy, which is a, um, a White House level organization that had really uh, been the driving force behind our previous um, strategic plans uh, to, to deal with the HIV pandemic in the United States. Um, that Office of National AIDS Policy was closed um, by the Trump administration, and there wasn't a White House presence um, per se, and that is now changing. Um, Harold Phillips is going to be heading uh, the Office of National AIDS Policy, which will be, just put it much more proximate and to the White House and mean that there's someone thinking about HIV at the table uh, when a lot of these discussions um, happen, and I think that can only be you know a good thing. I also... Um, think that there's going to be a time of opportunity related to healthcare policy because we've had a couple uh, sort of dominoes fall in terms of the the favorable recommendation of the Preventive Services Task Force for PrEP and the opportunities that that opens up because of our Affordable Care Act, which says that um, prevention services that have that highest rating have to be covered as part of, um, of insurance plans. And so when you put all these things together, we're sort of at a time of opportunity, I think, especially to move forward with expanding the reach of pre-exposure prophylaxis during um, this administration. And that's partly, you know, because there, I think there is some more diversity and some more progressive voices in the governmental structures, but also because of the timing of the stronger recommendation for the preventive value of PrEP. And, you know, hopefully we'll ex- we'll continue with Medicaid expansion. So we're lowering some of those barriers of cost uh, to accessing these services. So we mentioned HIV and, and, and PrEP. But beyond that, which 
SDIs are you most worried about in the US? What are the conditions with the the highest prevalence? You know, I think um, syphilis is just an an ongoing uh, problem, especially in gay and bisexual men. Many of the STIs much more heavily impact people in the southern United States. So there is a disparate you know, impact in terms of geography. Um, I, but I also want to highlight um, that I think we're learning a lot more about rectal gonorrhea and chlamydia in gay and bisexual men, which is, you know, can be clinically um, silent. But my colleague Jeff Jones and our uh, colleagues at CDC recently did an analysis where we examined the potential population impact of these these rectal STIs that go undiagnosed in gay men. And Jeb estimated that 10 to 15% of new HIV infections among men who have sex with men may be attributable to these asymptomatic uh, rectal STIs. So I, I think there's just a need to normalize um, screening for these conditions, all of them, to make uh, screening for STIs available in ways that are convenient and are um, acceptable to populations. But I think there's especially an opportunity uh, to increase routine screening for rectal STIs and men who have sex with men, because that really could, could be such a straightforward way to reduce the HIV incidence in MSM by maybe as much as 10 or 15% just by getting good coverage of that screening. And where do people typically go to get tested today? Are there networks of specialized clinics in the U.S.? Yeah, there. Um, most health jurisdictions have um, sexual health clinics or what used to be called STD clinics uh, where services are provided, um, you know, and it's one of the conduits for this federal money and sometimes joined by some state money that, that says we need to have places where people can go regardless of their health insurance or other, other ability to pay um, to be treated. I will say that in different communities that people's like willingness to go to STD clinics, at least historically, that there were some limitations to people's um, willingness and and they weren't always viewed as the most, you know, supportive uh, places. And there was some stigma associated with being seen, for example, going to those locations. So I'll say that there are a lot of great uh, models now that are emerging that really seek to to make the those clinics more customer friendly, uh, more customer service oriented, um, to reduce that stigma, and then also I think importantly the new opportunities for mail out STI testing, and I think it's just you know maybe obvious to people maybe not that um, there's also stigma um, for for people going into their providers and saying that they want to be tested for STIs um, and. And we know that uh, that sometimes providers are uncomfortable asking about, you know, whether people want to be screened for HIV and STIs and, and patients may be uncomfortable, you know, raising the topic. And so there may be just some group of people who, you know, prefer to test at home. And, and one of the things that I want to emphasize just from, you know, all of our work and talking to people living in different settings is that in rural part, rural parts of um, the U.S. South, at least where, where I do a, a lot of the work with our group, uh, we know that uh, gay and bisexual men who live in rural areas of the U.S. are much less likely to get tested for STIs. And one of the things that comes up is if you live in a small rural area um, and there may only be one clinic, and your your mom's you know best friend from high school or, or your um, your neighbor's aunt or somebody works in that 
um, in that health clinic, it may be difficult to go in and say, like, I need to be tested for STIs, but where you get tested for STIs also depends on how you have sex. So that conversation might need to be, I need to get tested for STIs and I need to do testing for rectal STIs as part of that. And so there are just situations where um, people may not feel safe to go in um, if there's one place in town to get this done. And so just having more options that let people sort of control that process, um, collect those specimens in their home and get the results back through a telehealth um, session is just a really important, while we work to reduce stigma and normalize and treat these issues, just like getting a skin cancer check or your blood pressure taken. But until that time comes, we need to be sure that there are lots of options that help navigate around that stigma. So Patrick, you've mentioned remote or home testing on, on a number of occasions. And I know it's an area that you've researched and that's close to your, your heart. What's the situation or the general situation with remote testing in the US at the moment? So I, there's been quite a proliferation of companies that really have physicians who are available to their networks to sort of order testing on a nationwide basis. And and I think a smaller number of laboratories that support multiple sort of front end services. But one can now go online and order from a number of vendors, you know, a, a kit that comes with instructions to collect and send these specimens back in for testing. And, you know, typically there's a, a physician um, who sort of is involved in that process uh, by reviewing answers to some online questions and saying that the test is appropriate. There's a physician that can be contacted if there are questions about next steps, but it really becomes a very much of a consumer-driven, you know, opportunity, a self-paid, a sort of a fee-for-service, um, and can be fairly expensive. And so maybe out of the price, you know, possibilities for some, you know, folks who would benefit from that testing. The um, the integration of mail-out laboratory testing as a strategy. Uh, to reduce follow-up visits or to to increase compliance with recommendations for routine screening, I think is in a much earlier phase. So my colleague, Aaron Siegler at Emory, for example, is um, working on a randomized trial of gay and bisexual men who use PrEP. And the question is, these are men who need to come back in for STI testing every three months as part of their PrEP, you know, regimen. So the question is, one, the normal thing would be I come back into the clinic every three months, I sit in the waiting room, I go in, I provide the specimens, I see the provider for a couple minutes, and then if my, my SDI tests come back um, negative, I get a notification of that. The alternative strategy he's testing is mailing out these materials so that men can mail in the STI specimens. And the hypothesis is that, that people may be more likely to adhere to their three-monthly screening if they don't have to go into a, a provider's office to do it. And I think these are the kinds of studies that are going to inform that transition from something that's more either self-directed or research-oriented to being more integrated in practice. The last thing I'll say about this is these sort of research studies, I do think, build a bridge to implementation as a broader part of practice. So I mentioned that we have the privilege and the pleasure to work with CDC colleagues on on some of these studies, and I, and I worked with um, colleagues at CDC on a study of just mailing out HIV self-test kits. So these don't come back into the laboratories, but they are um, sort of oral fluid um, self-administered tests. 
And we did a randomized trial to answer a question that sort of seems obvious in retrospect, which is if you mail out um, kits to people who need to test, you know, one or more times a year, is that associated with higher rates of testing? And the answer is when we mailed out um, to a couple thousand, a few thousand um, gay and bisexual men, you know, test kits every three months, they tested on average about every three months. So people are willing um, to use these kits, but that randomized evidence then provided a base of science. And, and we're now working with um, CDC in a program that's making these kits available for free just through a national website that people can, you know, go to that URL and order one or two kits and have them shipped to their, their house. So there is this pathway from um, sort of touching the bases around what we may think are obvious preferences. Once we demonstrate it, then it lets that sort of federal investment, I think, come in behind the evidence. And so we're there now with mail out HIV tests. And I think we have a ways to go yet with mail in STI specimens. But I think that there's great interest in establishing that that scientific base um, so that we can move forward. And has the legislation, I know we're talking around 50 states, but in general, has the legislation adapted to accept um, remote STI and, and HIV tests? I think the framework for doing this uh, is sort of already in place. Uh, in, in the U.S., there's sort of a different set of issues. I think one is sort of a regulatory framework where um, there is a provision for laboratory developed tests that use approved kits, like say a kit is approved by the FDA to test on whole blood or on serum. Um, there is a, a process for developing laboratory developed tests that, for example, use an alternative specimen collection method. And that is um, something that's put in the, in the hands and the responsibility of CLIA and CAP accredited labs. And those, and they have to um, basically demonstrate that the results that they get out of those alternative specimen types are comparable, but they can use the same um, sort of kits and reagents. So that's one level. I think the level that is probably um, still a little bit uh, be lags behind that is when we get to, you know, routine integration into practice, uh, whether the reimbursement for those kinds of testing approaches um, is always as easy. And, and that's an area that I, I'll just admit to knowing less about. But I think because we have this um, system where there are, you know, private payers and there are public payers for care, there are, are sort of multiple parties that need to buy into the idea that those tests should be reimbursed by, by insurance uh, in the same ways. And I think there's still some opportunity for progress there. And then I think there's culture um, and we still come across, you know, on the part of some you know, clients who like the idea of not having to go to the doctor or collecting their specimens um, at home, questions still just come up about the accuracy of the tests. And, and so I think we need to do more about creating a culture that says for, for whatever kinds of health conditions, if you need to be screened um, regularly, that sometimes you may want to go to the doctor, sometimes you may want to do that at home and that people need to feel assured that the quality of that testing is going to be robust, you know, however they do it. And so I think that's, you know, some public education because those concerns do still come up. Thank you, Patrick. You mentioned labs. Are many public and, and private health labs accredited to, to carry out remote testing? Uh, I'll admit to possibly incomplete information, but in my experience, it really is, um, you know, private labs that are much more out front. Uh, in terms of the remote specimens. 
And um, I'm less familiar with public labs that are getting into that um, space. As I mentioned before, I do think there's a fair amount of centralization of these services. They are specialized in terms of the specimen processing. And, and so there, there are, I know that there are multiple of these you know, vendors who market these self-test kits. And whether you buy them from vendor A or B or C, they all likely come back to one of those large labs that has a greater specialty uh, in this. I, I do think that as we move towards broader adoption of these, that it's going to be an important initiative to figure out what that technology transfer is. Because when you have these laboratory developed tests or LDTs, they really are developed and used in that laboratory and that laboratory is responsible for them. So trying to see if there are ways to get more of these alternative specimen collection types um, worked into the manufacturer's approval. And that, that puts less technical burdens on state public health labs to sort of generate and keep this evidence of you know, equal performance. So there's a while to go. Manufacturers really have an important role in working closely with the labs that are doing these validations um, to try and make sure that, that, that the lessons learned in that can be generalized. So um, I think there's a way to go and it's still pretty specialized right now. So what we've seen in a, a lot of other countries, Patrick, is that COVID has actually been a real boost for remote testing. Has that been the same in the US? Um, I, I think it's true that, um, that it's put a lot of attention um, and it's raised the awareness of, of telehealth and remote testing. It hasn't, to my knowledge, accumulated in the sort of public health data yet. We know from surveys of uh, people who, you know, would be regular users of HIV and STI testing, you know, that there was an initial, you know, real drop in sexual activity and sexual exposures. And so I think some of what may play into these trends may have just been decreased perceived need. I, I think it, part of it is increased comfort with telehealth, but I think part of it is also just increased comfort with, you know, the use of um, these tools for video conferencing. And there, there may be a pretty big population of people that was just never had the reason to have Zoom on their computer or to know what it's about. Uh, but because all kinds of things meet this way now, there's sort of maybe more comfort and familiarity with uh, you know, the mechanisms for that. So I think it'll be interesting to see with a little bit of retrospect what we can learn about the volume of testing through telehealth. But I think there's this interplay between people's perceived need for testing, which, which went down uh, because of decreased sexual activity uh, early on and which now has, um, has sort of come back or, or some suggest you know, surpass what it was before. So it's a complex interplay of who thinks they need to get tested and then how they get tested. And Patrick, tell me about your, your research. Yeah, so, um, so the group that I work with and, and my own research, I think is increasingly pivoting from sort of a discovery phase and trying to, um, to just demonstrate the utility of mailed out um, HIV and SDI testing and, and developing some of the randomized controlled evidence that talk, speak to how we can do it effectively. And I find myself being much more interested now in how we actually implement things that we know work. Uh, you know, I, I sort of talked about the acceptability of the mail out STI testing and then Jeb Jones's data that says we could we could eliminate 10 or 15% of the infections in gay and bisexual men 
just by diagnosing these asymptomatic rectal SEIs. And so in light of the sort of healthcare policy and variation across states uh, um, that we talked about before, how do we build programs that really bring these tools to scale? And what do we need to know to implement them effectively in the healthcare system that we have? So I'm, I'm quite interested in implementation of, you know, routine HIV screening, routine STI screening, uh, using, we have, a, we have a, um, a mobile app that's shown efficacy for increasing PrEP uptake in gay and bisexual men. I think a lot of that is it's an app that, you know, reminds you when, when you have stuff due to take care of your sexual health. So, you know, when it's time for an HIV test, when it's time to check in on whether you may have an indication for PrEP and figuring out how we can bring those things to scale in the public health system that we have. We also mentioned in, in the introduction health inequities. Can you talk a little bit about that and your focus on that area? Sure. I mentioned that early in my career, I had the, the chance to uh, examine black-white disparities in the HIV epidemic. And, and unfortunately, decades later, those black-white disparities persist. And we now also have emerging and growing disparities between Hispanic and white gay and bisexual men. And where research has been done to understand this it's is it, sort of further along, I would say, in understanding the black-white disparities in the U.S. And it really comes down to um, sort of social determinants of health, access to health care, um, stigma, and basically some things that are related to the structure of our health care system that mean that there is in, inequitable access to screening, to treatment, um, but also these, these cultural stigmas around HIV infection, um, racism gets compounded with that. And so unraveling disparities is something that will last beyond my career and, you know, will be with us for a while. The other disparities that I'll point out is the disparity for transgender people, especially trans women in the United States. We just did a summary for The Lancet of that summarized these inequities along different dimensions. And so you know, some groups like Black Americans versus white Americans, Black Americans are seven times more likely to be uh, living with HIV than white Americans. Black women are 17 times more likely to be living with HIV than, than white women. But when you get to trans folk, we're sort of north of 100 times uh, more impacted by the HIV epidemic. Similar issues, which is um, stigma, lack of access to sort of culturally competent health care, economic disenfranchisement because they're um, often discrimination and employment against trans people. So I guess the picture that I'm trying to paint is these aren't, to me, so much clinical issues as they are, you know, issues of other inequities in our society that play themselves out through HIV. And in that sense, we can identify them. But it, it really is a, a bigger project to figure out how you try and undo those, those inequities. So, Patrick, to conclude, how do you see the U.S. sexual health landscape evolving over time? I'm really excited about the idea that better access to screening for SCIs can be a game changer. And I think that COVID has increased people's comfort with different models of healthcare. And so I feel like, as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of the opportunities uh, for HIV screening were very locally driven and were sometimes in stigmatized locations. And so what I hope happens is that we 
just reshape a dialogue around, um, you know, what types of STI screening is recommended for different populations. Everyone can figure out like what they're, they're meant to do and that they have a lot of different choices to do that. And I think if we can make those choices easy, address the stigmas where they occur, make it convenient, that we really could normalize and destigmatize a little bit so that we go from a model of people seeking testing because they're symptomatic to people understanding what they need to do and then figuring out which way works best for them. Um, maybe that's a long time frame. I now am at the stage in my career where I, I just often acknowledge like this will happen after I've retired, <laughs> but I think that's the traje trajectory. And I think that these self-collection you know, methods will play a big part in that. Now, well, plenty of years left, Patrick, <laughs> and plenty, plenty more to do. And just one, one final question for somebody starting out in the sexual health field. What piece of advice would you, would you give them? I would say, you know, find mentors whose work you respect and ask them to help you, you know, get integrated. When I look back at my career, I, I can identify a, a string of mentors who really were so generous in making introductions in like hearing my ideas, good and bad, um, and telling me that the bad ones were bad. So, you know, I think there's a whole cadre of people who are really passionate about this area of health, especially in the U.S. and in, in the public health you know, world. STDs is something that's often been left to public health institutions to care for. And there's a lot of history around these infections, how they've been managed, um, the social consequences. And so I would say find someone who's passionate about this and who's willing to mentor and help you navigate through. And, uh, and that's probably the, the piece of career advice I give in most things. But, you know, I, I guess I would also say if someone's starting out in this field, you're picking a great field to start out in because there's been a long stretch of decades where I feel like the programmatic progress has been more incremental. And I think these technologies are going to launch us on, you know, a period of rapid change and innovation. And it's going to be a very exciting time to be working in, in sexual health. Thank you so much, Patrick. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Nick. It's been great to talk. And um, thanks for what you're doing with the podcast uh, to really bring a lot of these issues into discussion and, and make sure that we're, we're really having a conversation about these issues that crosses countries and crosses categorical healthcare systems and that we're learning from each other. So I look forward to um, hearing uh, the future sessions of folks that you talk with as well. I'll be a subscriber. Thank you very much for listening to the Sticks and Stones podcast today. And I very much hope you enjoyed the chat with Patrick. On our next episode, I'll be speaking to Tim Alston from Preventex, who has developed remote testing programs in the UK. So do make sure you subscribe. And if you have a moment now to rate and review us, it really does help other people find this content. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter under Sticks STI. That's Sticks S T I X S T I. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Sticks and Stones is produced by Birdline Media.